Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, another night of protests follow the police shooting by a white female officer of Dante White, a young black father in Brooklyn, Minnesota. This as the prosecution wraps up its case against Derek Chauvin, the white police officer who killed George Floyd. Our guest is Minneapolis-based D.A. Bullock with Reclaim the Block. And an update on the rising tensions in the Middle East as the U.S. is in talks with Iran. Meanwhile, a nuclear facility in Iran was attacked and Iran claims it was an Israeli attack. It remains to be seen how this impacts the U.S.-Iran talks. We speak with Middle East expert Phyllis Bennis. And Amazon claims a victory as the vote to unionize at one of its plants went down in defeat. But supporters of the union say not so fast that they intend to keep on organizing. We speak with Mike Elk, a senior labor reporter for PaydayReport.com. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandiri. Protesters defied a curfew and returned to the streets of the Minneapolis suburb of Brooklyn Center for a second night after Sunday's fatal police shooting of 20-year-old Dante Wright. Hundreds of protesters faced off against police hours after a dust-to-dawn curfew was announced by the governor. When protesters didn't disperse, police began firing gas canisters and flashbang grenades. Some stores were vandalized and looted. Forty were arrested. The police chief said earlier in the day that 26-year veteran police officer Kimberly Potter mistook her firearm for a taser when she fatally shot right as he attempted to drive away from an arrest. The city manager, who's in charge of the police department, was fired yesterday. More from Mike Moan. Police officials say the officer intended to use her taser but pulled her gun by mistake. But Wayfinder Foundation director and civil rights attorney and activist Nakima Levy-Armstrong says it shows the state has failed to address the issue of racial profiling. The fact that police officers would prioritize pulling someone over for allegedly having expired tabs is unconscionable in the midst of a pandemic. Activists say Wright, who had an outstanding warrant and got back into his car while being handcuffed, should not have been in that situation because he wasn't a serious threat. The incident resulted in protests and civil unrest Sunday night and prompted curfews Monday evening announced by Governor Tim Walls. I'm Mike Moen. The defense for former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, charged in George Floyd's death, is set to start presenting its case today. It follows 11 days of the prosecution, which combined disturbing new video of Floyd's death with clinical analysis by medical and use of force experts. There was also emotional testimony by Floyd's girlfriend and yesterday by Floyd's brother, Felonis. He was so much of a, a leader to us in the household. He will always make sure that we had our clothes for school. He made sure that we all were going to be uh, to school on time. 
And like I told you, George couldn't cook, but he'll make sure you have a snack or something to get in the morning. Once the defense takes over, Chauvin attorney Eric Nelson is expected to have his own experts testify. It was Floyd's drug use and a heart condition, not Chauvin's knee to Floyd's neck, that killed him. Federal officials are pausing the use of the single-dose Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine while they investigate reports of rare but potentially dangerous blood clots. In a joint statement, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the Food and Drug Administration said they're investigating clots in six women in the days after vaccination in combination with reduced platelet counts. One woman died, another was hospitalized. More than 6.8 million doses of the J&J vaccine have been administered in this country. The reports appear similar to a rare, unusual type of clotting disorder that European authorities say is possibly linked to the AstraZeneca vaccine. Federal officials are recommending that people given the J&J vaccine who experience severe headaches, abdominal pain, leg pain, or shortness of breath within three weeks after receiving the shot contact their health care provider. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg has expressed what he calls the Western Military Alliance's unwavering support for Ukraine. He warned Russia not to further push its troop buildup along the border with Ukraine. Russia must end this military buildup in and around Ukraine, stop its provocations and de-escalate immediately. We do not and will not recognize Russia's illegal and illegitimate annexation of Crimea. We continue to call on Russia to end its support for the militants in eastern Ukraine. Russia said it's free to deploy its troops wherever it wants on its territory. It has accused the Ukrainian military of provocative actions along the line of control and of planning to retake control of the eastern rebel-held regions by force. Will Smith and director Antoine Fuqua have pulled production of their film Emancipation from Georgia over the state's recently enacted law restricting voting access. The film is based on the true story of an enslaved man named Whipped Peter who escaped from a southern plantation and joined the Union Army during the Civil War. Smith and Fuqua said in a statement they could not in good conscience provide economic support to a government that enacts regressive voting laws designed to restrict voter access. They said the new Georgia voting laws are reminiscent of impediments to voting that were passed at the end of Reconstruction. I'm Eileen Alfandiri for Pacifica Radio. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, as millions of people anxiously are awaiting the outcome of the Derek Chauvin uh, trial, the white Minneapolis police officer who murdered George Floyd in May 2020. Yet another black man in Minnesota has been killed by police. On Sunday, April 11th, 20-year-old Dante Wright was murdered in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, less than 10 miles away from where George Floyd was killed almost a year ago. At around 2 p.m. local time, Brooklyn Center police pulled over Dante for an alleged traffic violation. As he was being pulled over, he called his mom to let her know. Officers reportedly ran his name through a police database and noticed that he had an outstanding warrant uh, for, it wasn't actually a felony. Um, and they proceeded to attempt to arrest him. And a clip of the body camera footage has been um, 
released. Actually, let us go to that clip right now, uh, the first clip that we have for this segment on protesters enveloped Twin Cities area after police shooting of Dante Wright. Now to a developing story out of suburban Minneapolis. A protest is underway in Brooklyn Center for Dante Wright, who was shot and killed in a traffic stop yesterday. Today, the police chief released body cam footage from the encounter, which he is calling an accident. He told CBS correspondent Jamie Yukis and other reporters, while the video is graphic, the public needs to see it. Body cam footage reveals a Brooklyn Center police officer yells taser multiple times before firing her handgun and fatally shooting 20-year-old Dante Wright. Chief Tim Gannon told reporters he believes the officer, described as very senior, intended to deploy her taser. This appears to me, from what I viewed and the officer's reaction and distress immediately after, that this was an accidental discharge that resulted in the tragic death of Mr. Wright. Police say Wright was pulled over for an expired registration. Officers then determined there was an outstanding arrest warrant and tried to arrest him. Wright is seen getting back into his car, and then the officer fires. The car traveled several blocks before hitting another vehicle. He didn't deserve to be shot and killed like this. The incident occurred just 10 miles from where the murder trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin is underway. We are in pain right now. And we recognize that this couldn't have happened at a worse time. The shooting sparked violent protests overnight and clashes with police. The chief defended the use of flashbangs and tear gas to try to break up the group. We had to disperse the crowd because we can't allow our officers to be harmed. An investigation into the officer is underway and she's on administrative leave. I think we can look at the video and, and ascertain whether or not she'll be returning. The department is bracing for more protests tonight. Jamie Yukis, CBS News, Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. The Minnesota Twins postponing today's matchup against the Boston Red Sox. The Minnesota Timberwolves and Wild also put off tonight's home games. Meanwhile, President Biden is calling for calm as night falls. Peaceful protest, understandable. And the fact is that, you know, uh, we do know that the anger, pain and trauma that exists in the black community in that environment is real. It's serious and it's consequential, but it doesn't, will not justify violence and or looting. Minnesota's governor has issued a three-county curfew for tonight. The incident calls to mind the deadly 2009 police shooting of Oscar Grant. The officer who shot him in the back as he lay on the Fruitvale BART platform also said he had intended to use his taser on Grant, not his gun. Johannes Meserly went to trial for murder but was ultimately convicted of involuntary manslaughter and sentenced to two years. And for the past two nights, mourners and protesters have been gathering near the scene to demand justice for Dante. On Sunday, April 11th, police with riot control equipment cracked down on the crowd of several hundred people outside of the police precinct. Brooklyn Center Mayor, who is himself a black man, Mike Elliott, issued a citywide curfew until 6 a.m., and uh, local schools were closed out of an abundance of caution. Uh, this according to the Brooklyn Center Community Schools Superintendent. At a press conference um, featuring Governor Kemp, 
Tim Waltz Monday afternoon, Minnesota National Guard General Sean Mankey said that more than 1,000 National Guard soldiers will be present in the metropolitan area throughout the week. And uh, again, a second night of protests. Meanwhile, on Monday, April 12th, that marked day 11 of the Derek Chauvin's trial and George Floyd's brother uh, testified. He offered a heartfelt testimony telling the court that his elder brother was a mama's boy and a loving person when they were growing up together in Houston. And uh, later on, Dr. Jonathan Rich, a cardiologist based in Chicago, testified that George Floyd died from cardiopulmonary arrest caused by low oxygen levels brought on by prone restraint, okay, and positional asphyxia, making him the fifth doctor to confirm this in Chauvin's trial. Following Rich's testimony, uh, Seth uh, Stroughton, a use of force expert and former police officer, said Chauvin's actions represented deadly force and were unreasonable. He added, no reasonable officer would have believed that was an appropriate or acceptable use of force. The defense is expected to begin presenting their case on Tuesday. Now, before we welcome our guests, keep in mind that all of this is also happening around uh, the controversy of uh, a, a black uh, lieutenant um, in the military um, being stopped and pepper sprayed in Virginia. Uh, so indeed, let us go to a clip on that incident right now. How many occupants are in the vehicle? What's going on? How many occupants are in your vehicle? It's only myself. Why are your weapons drawn? What's going on? Get the door slowly and step out. Get out of the car now. What's going on? Get out on? of the car now. Get out of the car. Sir, just get out of the car. Work with us and we'll talk to you. Get out of the car. You received our order. Obey it. Get out of the car now. Yo, what? guess what? I'm a veteran too. I learned to obey. Get out of the car. What's going on? What's going on? You're fixing to ride the lightning, son. Get out of the car now. Get out. Get out of the car. Get out now. You're being stopped by traffic violation. You're not cooperating at this point right now. You're under arrest for, you're being detained, okay? You're being detained for obstruction of justice. Really? Really? Get out of the car now. Get out of the car. Get your hands off me. Get out of the car. Get your hands off me. You know what? Get your hands off me. It's not a problem. Back up, Daniel. Don't do anything. Sir. Get out of the car now. Sir. Hey, sir. Get out of the car now. Sir, look. I'm trying to talk to you. Okay. I'm trying to talk to you. Just get out of my car. Can you please relax? Can you please relax? Get out of the car right now. Now. This is not how you treat a vet. I'm actively serving this country, and this is how you're going to treat me? Back up, Daniel. I didn't do anything. Whoa, hold on. What's going on? Hold on. Get out of the car! Get out of the car now! Let's go. Sir, just get out of the car! I'm trying to breathe. Ugh. Take your seatbelt off and get like out of the car. My hands are out. Don't reach in there, Daniel. Don't reach in there. My hands are out. Please. Straight on the ground. Get on the ground. Get on the ground. Please talk to me. Get on the ground now! Get on the ground or you're getting sprayed again. Get on the ground. Can you please talk to me about what's going on? Get on the ground! Get on the ground now! Can you please talk to me about what's going on? Get on the ground! 
All right, and of course, that incident involving Lieutenant Karan Nazario, who is uh, black and Latino, and um, the Virginia Governor Ralph Northam said on Sunday that he's directing the Virginia State Police to investigate um, the incident. So here we go. Um, I'd like to welcome back to Sojourner Truth D.A. Bullock, award-winning filmmaker and social practice artist in the field of story-based community organizing. Um, D.A. Bullock is based in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and is also involved with Reclaim the Block, a coalition to demand that Minneapolis police divest from policing and invest in long-term alternatives. D.A. Bullock, welcome back. Thank you for having me, Margaret. Uh, so, DA, I mean, I, I, I put those two together because it really gives a sense of what it is really like uh, to walk around in the skin that you and I have, where you're feeling under threat at any moment. I mean, actually, let's just deal with that last one first before we go into uh, the latest shooting in uh, Minneapolis of this uh, stop of the Lieutenant D.A. Bullock, your thoughts? It, it's heartbreaking to hear that, you know, and to, and to watch the video um, where, you know, um, the, the Army Lieutenant uh, Lazario is, is making a decision to try to save his own life because he knows uh, the threat that is facing him, even though he has committed no crime. Like, the assumption of criminality amongst black drivers is, is sort of the first step in the escalation towards the violence that happens later on, whether that be being pepper sprayed or tased or shot in, in the instance of, of Dante Ray. Right, absolutely. And, you know, a situation where you ha first have to prove you're not a criminal and then you also have to prove that you are indeed a human being, right? So that really sets uh, the context here. Now, I'm sure, you know, the nation was stunned. Well, many of the nation stunned with yet another shooting, the shooting of uh, Dante Wright. And this a female police officer uh, claims to have mixed up her um, taser with a gun. And of course, protests have now broken out, and that's 10 miles away from the Chauvin uh, trial, where the prosecution today will wrap up its case. Um, your reaction and what you are getting from what is being said on the street, the feeling of the street of yet this other shooting. And he's, he's a dad. I think he was the father of a two-year-old, D.A. Bullock. He was he was a dad, and uh, firstly, you know, everyone is heartbroken that this would happen again. Like, our our first demand was to never have another George Floyd, and, and here we have another um, murder, killing at the hands of police uh, in, the, in the same instant of the trial of the murderer of George Floyd. So it, it is traumatic, it's heartbreaking, and... Again, it just points to the glaring fundamental problem with policing in that um, regardless of if the officer is saying they made a mistake, the, the first interaction was intentional. They stopped him as a pretext 
to try to check for criminality because they saw him, they identified him as a young black man driving and, and decided they were going to try to find a reason to stop him. That's a pretext stop. So they stopped him because of expired license plates tabs, even though the, the chief admitted that they had awareness, all of his officers had awareness that because of the pandemic, uh, everyone is late getting their their um, their license re- license plates renewed. So the officers knew that going in, but yet still decided to take that as an opportunity to try to put criminality on this young man. And so that that precipitated the entire interaction, and that's what made the officer have the the state of mind to escalate to that kind of violence whether they were grabbing for one form of violence or another, like the reason they were grabbing for the violence in the first place is because it's this assumption of criminality on this young black man. Yeah, and, you know, much is being said. Of of course, the the media, mainstream media, they tend to um, focus in. I mean, you know, you see coverage after coverage of violence uh, breaks breaks out and and that there's looting uh, going on and people are throwing uh, water bottles at police officers. And, you know, really, the the coverage attempting to criminalize the protesters themselves. And around the Chauvin uh, trial, the defense actually tried to blame um, people, onlookers, who were very concerned that this man was killing George Floyd, to blame them uh, for what happened. So, D.A. Bullock, it's it's always a, a, a balancing act, isn't it, of uh, you are on the ground, you know, in uh, Minnesota to, you know, to, to kind of take a position of, well, they're the good protesters and they're the bad protesters, and really um, blaming whatever happens, you know, whether somebody's throwing a water bottle, uh, and then massive uh, police response. I mean, the footage I've seen, it looked like there were thousands of uh, police officers out there. And frankly, it sounded like a war zone, D.A. Bullock. Absolutely. It resembled a war zone. And I think what you just mentioned is, is pretty key in that you can see the commonality in that police will use any excuse to escalate their own form of violence. <clears throat> and, they, and they know, we, we saw on January 6th that they know a great deal about how to uh, exhibit restraint when they want to. It, it's, it is really about the, the way they frame the, the individual protesters, the way they see them as, as a threat or not a threat. And... Uh, you know, from the very start, when they were saying they were promoting First Amendment rights to protest, they were still out in front of those protesters, myself included, um, in full army regalia, in full military regalia, in full uh, with the support of, of um, the National Guard. You know, these, these kind of things that are instantly provocative and then knowing that in their strategy, anytime one individual does something to justify, they, they, they return with this massive escalation in, in violence and tactics. So they, they ended up tear gassing 
mostly apartment buildings filled with black and brown families across the street, very close, you know, within 200 feet of the police department building. So intentionally they were putting this, this gas, this toxic gas in the, in the living rooms and bedrooms of, of young kids sleeping in the apartment building next door. And so that, that's an intentional escalation. Uh, they, they didn't have to respond to a bottle being thrown at their feet with that, that form of huge escalation of violence. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, the the excuse then being given, I mean, I myself have been uh, part of a protest in L.A. where somebody threw a water bottle over a fence and the police reacted basically with a police riot, you know, coming in yeah. on, on horseback, beating in heads, you know, et cetera. But uh, D.A. Bullock, I mean, they think that it's not possible for there to be another incident. You see what happened with the lieutenant in Virginia, and as you rightly said, he's probably calculating, hey, I could end up dead in this, you know, uh, situation, so uh, let me just figure out how I'm going to handle that. And I'm sure that that was also uh, the case for, um, you know, in, in this particular in instance for, for Dante. And then Martin Luther King famously said, uh, a riot is the voice of the unheard. And for people who go on about why are people so angry and why are they even throwing water bottles or whatever, never mind, as you say, the fact that, um, uh, you know, some of this, just the flashbangs and the tear gas, et cetera, likely totally unnecessary. I heard uh, the police chief saying, well, you know, we have to protect um, our law enforcement officers as though the protesters were really a threat to law enforcement officers. But the fact of the matter is, is that you're doing everything to be heard. You're doing everything to say that this has got to stop by peaceful means, legislation, going on the media, you're marching up and down. But nevertheless, this sort of thing continues to happen. And it is true that this officer who 27 years experience and she can't tell the difference between a gun and, uh, you know, something that you're going to tase somebody with. <laughs> anyway, um, D.A. Bullock, your and, thoughts you know, here. And I think Trauma begets trauma, and, and it, is, it has been stacked one on top of another, on top of another. Not only the cases that we know of, but it's the, the many cases that people don't know of in the area. And then that this officer was involved in another police shooting uh, prior to this one. So oh, you know, really? community, community members have knowledge of these officers themselves, and they know um, about their reputations. They know about, you know, how they interact with community. Um, so, you know, we, there's a lot of building of, and, and, and just a lot of, um, trust eroded in the system in delivering justice. So, you know, people want to judge folks who go out and loot and, and sort of express their, their emotion and frustration in a, in a particular way, but they don't judge the conditions that, that they've been forced to live in. They don't judge uh, the disinvestment that has happened all around them. They don't judge the sort of um, 
the the disappointment in the system itself that is always constantly violating them for the smallest of things, yet police get away with with shooting and killing people. Police get away with abusing people. People of power get away with all of these kind of crimes and, and immoral acts, yet, you know, they're constantly violated for the smallest of things, including traffic violations or small code violations, uh, the type of things that, try, that the system uses to keep people in their place. And so that, that's what people is built up in people when they make the decision to uh, do something like looting. And so, you know, if you're going to judge them, you've got to judge the whole condition under which they're living and judge, you know, how that, that came to be. And that's not an individual thing. That's a system thing. Yeah, and, you know, the penny is beginning to drop even among some in the mainstream where they're saying, well, actually, it's policing in the United States that's on trial. I mean, going back to the Siobhan uh, trial for a moment here, and, and now you have this, this incident. Uh, but the prosecution wraps up its case. Um, a lot of people are saying a, a very strong case. But others are saying all the defense has to do was raise reasonable doubt among one of the jurors. I mean, that's that's really what it takes, and it remains to be seen what the prosecution is gonna is gonna come up with, and if they're gonna be able to counter the um, you know what people are saying has been a strong uh, case of the defense of the prosecution. So, just your thoughts on how things are going have gone thus far. And if, if <laughs> you know, you're, if, if you have any hope or expectation um, for how the outcome of this trial, but beyond whatever happens with the outcome of the trial, what about the work that you and others are doing on the ground uh, day to day? Are you seeing any shifting in the attitudes of, of police? Are you feeling that there is more support for the kinds of demands um, uh, reclaim the block and others are putting forward D.A. Bullock? I, I certainly think, you know, there is a compelling individual case against Derek Chauvin, but I thought that when I saw the video originally, I, you know, that, that hasn't changed. I think our common sense leads us to believe that there's, there's more than enough evidence to, to do that individual conviction but, you know, we know the system and how it works, and that, that doesn't always supply, you know, that individual justice for us. We know that for a fact. We've seen that movie before. And so I think people are still um, very leery of, of what could happen and what the defense could, could put up and, and what the jury could decide. But ultimately, I think, you know, people have, have really been um, – this has been enlightened about how policing works and just the, the function of policing and, and just dissatisfied with the entire system. I think people have noticed that when the police did testify in this case, uh, people made a big deal out of, you know, breaking this code of silence, but they really just testified in order to bolster this idea that, Derek Chauvin was this individual acting outside of their noble system, when in fact, you know, what Dante Wright's case showed uh, just, you know, uh, uh, less than a year later is 
it, it is the system in itself that is is not uh, working for us. It is not keeping us safe, and in fact, it is criminalizing us and making us criminal suspects from the very start. And and that's police throughout the policing system. That is not about one individual officer. So I think people are coming to that realization and knowing that um, you know all the, the reforms that are being offered have been offered uh, you know for a hundred years now when we talk about policing and and that their their violence that has caused like uprisings and those kind of things. So I don't think people have a great deal of faith in this reform idea now. They they really want some substance in the change and they want some actual we're going to actually take dollars and move them into things that we we want and we we think will work for us in our communities. And we do not want to have these interactions with uh, armed individuals when it comes to most of the things that we, we want to deal with in terms of safety. When we're calling somebody to do a wellness check on our loved one, we do not want some armed individual showing up for that. We, we want something else. We want fundamentally different systems of public safety. Right. And D.A. Bullock, I'm afraid we are going to have to leave it there. But for people who want to find out more about Reclaim the Block, some of the on-the-ground uh, organizing happening in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, what should they do? They can go to reclaimtheblock.org, and uh, that will link to a number of other organizations as well who are actively working in the community um, that's another thing that's come out of this is that there are just a really abundance of great community-based organizations doing this work and really doing a lot of great, like, person-to-person -person work within the community to change things. Right. Well, on that note, thank you for joining us, and we're going to be continuing uh, to cover this. We hope to speak with you again. D.A. Bullock, thank you for joining us. Thank you. All righty, this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We are going to take our station break. And coming up, um, you won't want to miss Middle East expert Phyllis Bennis um, on Palestine, uh, Israel, the U.S. and Iran nuclear talks, all of the latest analysis with Phyllis Bennis. Stay with us. We'll be right back. the beautiful voice of Rhiannon Giddens um, from Avalon. I think it's from her new, her brand new album. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And if you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us uh, there and our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. And we are nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And today we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Florida. How about the state of Florida?
Florida and internationally, let's give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Israel. Yes, there are SoundCloud listeners of Sojourner Truth in Israel. And we are now going to turn our attention uh, to that uh, region of the Middle East on Sunday, April 11th, a power failure that was reportedly caused by a de deliberately planned explosion struck the uh, Natanz nuclear facility in Iran. Iranian officials are saying the attack was carried out uh, by Israel. Indeed, let us go to a Washington Post clip now. Iran has blamed Israel for what it called an act of terrorism on its Natanz nuclear facility, according to state TV. Iranian Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Zarif vowed revenge on Monday, a day after local media reported the incident at the Natanz site, allegedly caused by a problem with the electrical distribution grid. A foreign ministry spokesman added that Iran would replace any damaged equipment, but that no contamination or casualties had been reported. The Natanz facility is the centerpiece of Iran's uranium enrichment program, one of several monitored by UN nuclear watchdog inspectors. Israel has in the past accused Iran of trying to build nuclear weapons to use against it. It has not formally commented on the incident. However, multiple Israeli media outlets have quoted unnamed sources claiming that its Mossad spy service carried out a successful sabotage operation at Natanz, potentially setting back enrichment work there by months. Iran and several world powers held what they described as constructive talks in Vienna last week, aimed at reviving the 2015 nuclear deal, which U.S. President Donald Trump abandoned three years ago, slapping sanctions on Tehran instead. Iran has gradually breached many restrictions imposed by the accord in response to those U.S. sanctions. The Natanz incident came shortly after Iran, which says its nuclear program is purely for peaceful purposes, began using new and advanced enrichment centrifuges at the facility. A senior U.S. administration official said Washington had no involvement. Right, and officials, uh, Iranian officials uh, added that the large explosion completely destroyed the independent and heavily protected internal power system that supplies the underground uh, centrifuges that enrich uranium. And uh, Ali Akbar Salehi, the head of Iran's Atomic Energy Organization, uh, characterized the blackout as an act of nuclear terrorism. And as we said earlier, this attack comes amid efforts by the Biden administration and Iran President Hassan Rouhani to salvage the 2015 nuclear uh, power deal, a deal that is very much opposed uh, by Israel. And by the way, the attack happened the same morning that the U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd J. Austin III was visiting um, Israel. And also on Wednesday, April 7th, an Iranian cargo ship anchored for years off the Red Sea off Yemen was attacked in a mine blast, this according to the Associated uh, Press. And that attack is also um, being uh, put on Israel. So helping us to understand uh, all of what is going on, we're delighted to welcome back to Sojourner Truth Phyllis Bennis, who directs the new internationalism 
project at the Institute for Policy Studies, focusing on U.S., Middle East, and war policy. She also serves on the board of Jewish Voice for Peace, and her most recent books include Understanding the Palestinian-Israeli Conflict. Phyllis Bennis, welcome back. Great to be with you, Margaret. Okay, so <laughs> there's a, a, a bit to unpack here. Um, yeah. Before we go into uh, any change that you might have observed in the policy uh, towards the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but the Biden administration, in contrast with the Trump administration, let us talk a bit about the um, Iran and the attack on this facility and whether your view is if it is a, a really an attempt to undermine any talks and negotiations between the United States and Iran. Yeah, well, actually, those two issues, Israel-Palestine and Iran, uh, are very linked. Um, what we're looking at yes. here, there is no question that this was designed specifically to undermine the possibility of an Iran deal. Israel's fear, to the degree that there is fear that goes beyond Benjamin Netanyahu's fear about losing the next election and ending up in jail, which is a big part of what motivates him. But beyond that, the, the real fear is not that there could someday in the future be a, an Iranian nuclear bomb, but that there could be an Iranian nuclear deal, which would lead, among other things, to the possibility of the U.S. diminishing or even pulling out to large degrees its military presence in the region that backs up Israel and its Arab allies, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, etc. Uh, there's a fear that that could lead to fewer arms being sent to the region by the United States, fewer uh, warships, fewer troops, etc. That's the real fear here that they're trying to avoid. So the effort to undermine the talks is very clearly the timing here. We had the, the attack on the first day of the talks last Thursday, with the attack on the uh, the attack on an Israeli sh uh, sorry on an Iranian ship, presumably by Israel, uh, in the Red Sea, and then this time, right on the eve of the talks that are supposed to be resuming tomorrow, uh, hopefully they still will go forward, uh, but with the additional sort of insult to the United States of doing it exactly on the day, as you mentioned that. Uh, General Austin, the U.S. Secretary of Defense, is in Israel expressing uh, explicitly his, quote, personal pledge to strengthening Israel's security and ensuring Israel's qualitative military edge. He gave two press conferences, two, two public statements, and he never said the word Iran, uh, despite knowing about the attack that had happened early that morning. So this, it's, it's the kind of insult that Netanyahu consistently launched against President Obama in the, in the run-up to the signing of the Iran nuclear deal back in 2015, uh, where there were, there were really racist approaches to Obama from Netanyahu and a lot of efforts to kind of undermine uh, Obama's standing in the United States, which didn't completely succeed, but did make it more difficult for Obama to get congressional support uh, for the Iran nuclear deal back then, back in, in 2015. So what we're looking at now, the big difference here, is that this is not just assumptions that Israel was involved. There are direct statements from uh, former and, in, in some cases, current unnamed and named former uh, top intelligence officials in Israel saying, yeah, we did it. 
get over it. You know, it's a very in-your-face kind of uh, uh, kind of approach here, and that is different than in the past where they have refused to cons- to confirm or deny. Uh, the former Mossad chief uh, Ephraim Halavi told the BBC yesterday in a in a name. You know, he was named. It was on the BBC World Radio. And he said that he's a supporter of the Iran nuclear deal, and he disagrees with the Israeli attack, making it clear that in his view there was no question that it was indeed uh, an Israeli attack. The Washington Post uh, quotes Yoel Guzansky, who was a former head of the Iran desk at at Israel's National Security Council, uh, and he talks about uh, the media reports and said it's clearly uh, a move to unofficially claim responsibility by giving all of these reports to the Israeli media. Uh, there's another, the New York Times quotes an unnamed Israeli intelligence official who describes in great detail exactly how the attack was allegedly carried out. So this time around, there is no question that Israel either did it, or if they didn't, they looked at it and said, wow, we should claim credit for that, because that will really undermine the U.S. position in the talks. And the possibility that Israel might be held accountable by the United States diplomatically for undermining this so important diplomatic effort to get back into the Iran nuclear deal, they clearly were not afraid of that at all. Doing it on the morning of General Austin's uh, visit means there was no fear that he was going to pack up and go home and say, I can't meet with you under these circumstances, we'll be in touch later. Uh, that he didn't even mention it during his talks. They were anticipating that there would be exactly that kind of, uh, uh, of, of response. We understand that there's going to be a meeting today of a committee that was first put together uh, during the Obama presidency between the U.S. and Israel at the level of national security advisors, the, the two national security advisors in Tel Aviv and in Washington, who would meet to, as they put it, avoid surprises on the question of how to deal with Iran and Iran's nuclear power program. In this case, they haven't met now for for many months, but they're about to meet again today to talk, presumably, about avoiding surprises. Now, we don't know whether the attack uh, on the Natanz nuclear plant carried out by Israel, or claimed at least by Israel, Uh, was in fact a surprise for the United States. The U.S. may have known about it. They say they have not. And it is significant that the U.S. is denying any connection and that so far the Iranians are focusing their anger and their demand for accountability on Israel. They're not saying this was done by the U.S. and Israel. They're accepting the Israeli claims, the unofficial claims of responsibility and saying this this is something we have to deal with with Israel. Um, we'll see tomorrow whether the Iranian diplomatic team uh, shows up for the, the continuation of the talks in Vienna. Uh, there's been no indication so far that they will not. Uh, hopefully they will, but of course it will make the possibility of a return to the nuclear deal much more difficult, uh, having had the, uh, the, the Iranians have to face this uh, this very serious attack on their nuclear power uh, plant, which also, of course, means that there will be inevitably some kind of an internal struggle within Iran's intelligence agencies, military agencies, all those who are charged with protecting this very important 
plant, they're going to have to blame someone, and that's destabilizing, obviously, to to any government. And and right now, in the run-up to elections in Iran that are scheduled for June, that's the last thing that Iran needs to be worrying about. So it's going to make the talks much more difficult. It is interesting that we may see a bit more of a divide than we've seen already between the United States and its allies in the nuclear deal. The so-called P5 plus 1 is now without the United States, of course, since it was the United States that abandoned the deal. The other countries in the deal, China, Russia, France, Britain, Germany, uh, as well as the European Union as a whole, they are still meeting with Iran directly, and then there is this uh, shuttle diplomacy going on between those meetings and the United States delegation led by Rob Malley uh, in in Vienna. But we're, we've been seeing a very distinct divide between the position of the United States, uh, certainly during the, the Trump years, but it has not changed very much. We've seen no lifting of the uh, the, the sanctions that Trump imposed, not just the reimposed nuclear sanctions, but several hundred new kinds of sanctions that were imposed uh, that have just crippled the Iranian economy. And, of course, in the context of the, of the pandemic, of the, the corona pandemic, uh, it's been horrific for ordinary Iranians, for families, to get medication, to be able to treat their loved ones, to get access to hospitals, Medicines have been unavailable. Uh, food prices have, have skyrocketed. Inflation has gone through the roof. So the lives of ordinary Iranians have been hurt terribly by these sanctions, whereas they've done little to change Iranian decision-making about its nuclear power plants. Uh, so it's a very complicated uh, reality right now, and the, the negotiations going on in Vienna are very, very delicate. This could really undermine the potential for getting back into the deal. The issue, of course, in Vienna, we have a situation where it was the United States that abandoned the deal and said, we are no longer bound by it. We're reimposing these uh, sanctions that were linked to Iran's earlier nuclear power activities, and we're going to impose a bunch of new sanctions in this so-called maximum pressure campaign. Well, as we know, that didn't work. Uh, Iran turned to the other signatories, the, the Europeans, the Chinese, the, the Russians, and said, look, the U.S. is out. We're still in the deal. You're still in the deal. You have the responsibility for making up for what the U.S. has stolen from us from abandoning this deal. And if you can make it possible for us to not face these new sanctions, we'll stick with the deal. And they waited for months, and the, the Europeans in particular said they would create a new system for Iran to engage with the international community, avoiding the U.S. sanctions. But they were never able to do it, whether it was a matter of lacking political will or whether the U.S. pressure was simply too strong is a, it's a complicated question. But they weren't able to do it. And as a result, Iran said, okay, we're going to start leaving certain obligations behind. We're going to extend our uh, uranium enrichment from what they had been doing legally at 3.5% up to uh, at 1.20%, which was a significant uh, violation. And they said, we're doing all this, but all of this can be reversed in a day. All of these 
moves that we are making that go outside the bounds of the nuclear deal, we're prepared to rescind them because we want the U.S. to come back into the deal. The U.S. position, despite that, is Iran has to blink first, as if Iran was responsible for the, the, the problems of the U.S. having left the deal. So it's a very unrealistic uh, position. And one of the things that we don't know yet is how this is going to play out in the talks in, uh, in, in, uh, in Vienna, whether they will be able to go forward, whether this is something that will lead to a significant delay in the talks. That could be very dangerous as well because of the elections that are coming forward. And with elections scheduled for June, by early May, campaigning in Iran is going to be at a fierce level. And it's going to be very difficult at that point for anyone affiliated with the, the nuclear deal to advocate continuing talks and continuing to try to negotiate with the United States when the sanctions are still in place. Because so far the Biden administration has done nothing to remove any of these extra sanctions that have been imposed. So it's a very, very complicated uh, um, situation that now faces Rob Malley and his team as they arrive back in Vienna for the talks tomorrow morning. Absolutely. And we can depend on you, Phyllis Bennis, for really breaking it down in such a comprehensive and understanding way. So we hope to call on you again, though, because the next few days are going to be critical with all of this. So we appreciate you joining us. Thank you so very much, Phyllis Bennis. Thank you, Margaret. It's always a pleasure. All righty. And we're going to wrap our show up now. Um, let's have a rather quick conversation with uh, Mike Elk. We're sorry we weren't able to reach him a little bit earlier. Uh, so that has impacted the amount of time that we have. Um, this is on the Amazon Union vote. Mike Elk, senior labor reporter for PaydayReport.com. His latest piece is anti-union. Amazon workers explain how mandatory anti-union meetings turned a them against the retail, wholesale, and department store uh, union. Uh, Mike Elk, we're glad we caught up with you. Thank you for joining us. Great to be on the show again. Uh, how are you doing? Okay. So, so Mike, what, what happened with, with the union? I mean, just we just have a few minutes, unfortunately. Break down for us your thoughts on what happened. I mean, why did the union lose this vote? Well, they rushed the election before they had built full support, and it came at a time when Amazon was expanding and hiring. So there were a lot of people that they hadn't really talked to, that hadn't heard much about unions, people that were nervous and scared. And, um, you know, what wind up happening is that uh, these folks, um, they winded up getting scared. Uh, they winded up, uh, you know, being afraid of what could happen, and they winded up voting down the union. Um, as a result, um, what was I going to say? They winded up voting down the union uh, because they knew very little about it. The interviews that we did with anti-union workers, the workers knew very little about the unions, and it didn't make a major difference in their life. Yeah, and, you know, the thing is, is that uh, a, a few headlines that I saw today in The, in the Guardian um, saying that U.S. unions aren't phased by the Amazon setback and vow to keep on organizing the fight. Do you think that reflects reality? I mean, what, what choice do they have anyway, uh, Mike? Well, I think, I think it's much tougher than that. Um, I do think it's going to, you know, they're going to want to fight in some way, but when you lose that badly, it's 
tough to get folks to want to fight again and to risk themselves if they don't see something. I thought unions going to need more of a non-traditional strategy. I mean, you can organize a lot before you even go to an NLRB election. And I think that unions really going to have to sit around and figure out how they plan to go about trying again there. Yeah, and I mean, you know, clearly there's still uh, some fight there. The uh, Amazon uh, workers, non-union workers at Amazon ran on a wildcat strike, right, in Chicago. So um, are you expecting to, you know, even with this defeat, though, to see workers continuing to find ways uh, to claim more of their rights working for Amazon and companies yeah. like, uh, like Amazon? Yeah, I think this has set up a giant bat signal for any workers that want to continue pushing and pushing the company, pushing them to do better and pushing them to do more. I think this set up a, a giant sign of relief, uh, and I think it will be interesting to see what occurs. Right. And um, so for people, uh, Mike, I know you, you uh, write with... Um, paydayreport.com. Is that where people can go to find out more of what you had to say about this and, and more uh, that you cover in paydayreport.com? Yes, yes. People can find out more about it. Uh, we have a lot of stuff up on the website there. Um, and, you know, there's a lot to find out about this. Right. So lessons to be learned all around. We hope that, uh, the, you know, unions are paying attention to see what went well and what they could have done better to lead to a victory next time. I mean, there was such a huge out, um, uh, you know, pouring of support for the Amazon workers, you know, from the actor Danny Glover, um, President Biden um, indicating, even though not very directly, Bernie Sanders and others. And But yet the defeat was a, a, a sound defeat. I mean, it wasn't what one would call a close vote. So let's keep an eye on what's happening and the organizing moving forward with, with labor unions. Mike Elk, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. All righty. We are out of time. Um, I'd like to thank um, the assistant producer, Romero uh, Funes, and um, today's show produced by me, Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank our engineer uh, for today. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, and y'all please stay safe.